pride cometh before the fall. We know that one, don't we? Pride comes before the fall. That's one of those verses that everybody knows. Something like, in the beginning, God created. Doesn't matter if you are a Christian, it's one of those ubiquitous verses everybody knows. Pride comes before the fall. So when I, I came to Christ at 15 years old, in a church, I did not go to church, my family did not go to church, and in that church, they had hired this youth pastor, and the church was exploding, it was probably 50 kids. And I got tied up in that, and somehow somebody drugged me to church, I met Jesus, um, it was fantastic, made lifelong friends, yes, teenagers can have a community of faith that is vibrant. And, and not just based on fun, but based on actually enjoying the Lord together. And that church split in the middle of that. On a Sunday, publicly, it's cracked, dissolve. And you know, I didn't care that much because I was really there more for my friends, and we just didn't care that much. But later in life, man, it really bothered me. And if you've ever seen that, let's just be honest, most of us that have been Christians for a while or have gone to church for more than a year or two have seen some version of that, and it hurts, man. Um, we've all been burned, let down, disappointed, uh, and it, what I've noticed in my life is that we know that it's a lack of humility that causes these things. We know that people want their own way, and they want to use their power to their own ends, but when we get burned by that, um, whether it's in a, in a job situation, in a church, whether it's in a relationship where somebody uses their power to take from you, you don't get more humble, do you? You get hardened. I did. I didn't trust church for a long time, and I think for good reason. So when we experience a lack of humility in our lives, even though we would say, yes, we know that God... Um, opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, we ourselves actually get hardened, a little bit just like gum that's stuck under a desk. So experiencing that doesn't make us humble, makes us hard. Well, that doesn't seem right, does it? That's not what God has for us. So we're in Advent, we're discovering what it means that Jesus comes into the world and is born. We've heard the story so much, sometimes it is just expected. I want to show you a king today who has every right to demand worship from you in this very moment. But this king comes in and he uses his power in a way that no human authority ever has or ever will. This king uses his power to give up his position instead of hold on to it. And the text will show that. He uses his power to like bring his presence to you. He offers his presence to you. And he also uses his power, as we've heard today, to bring peace to the nations. If you've never seen or considered how Jesus, and we learned last week he's the Christ or the king, if you've never considered Hey, I wonder how this king uses his power. Well, our text today in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, gives you a very clear picture. And I want you to witness how Jesus, 
God the Son uses his power and what he does with it, because it's fantastic and it's beautiful. So let's jump in. We're going to be in chapter 2 of Matthew. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 12. This is common. You've probably heard this before. But again, watch, just think through how Jesus, how God uses his power here. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We desperately need to understand what it means to give ourselves to a king who uses his power to serve us and to love us and to open up access to himself. Jesus, we pray that as we read your word, as we understand it, you would open it up that we might behold its treasure, Lord, because we need it. We need it. Don't let us cruise through this Advent Christmas season, Lord, without understanding what kind of king you are. So we submit ourselves to you and to your word and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This isn't too hard to see. This narrative is not too complex, especially when you're looking at it from the context of Jesus being the Christ, or the Hebrew term for that would be Messiah, the anointed one of God, the king who would come. So if we're looking at Jesus as king, we will see that Jesus in this text uses his power very differently. He uses his power not to hold on to his position like Herod does. He uses his power to actually give up his rightful position, to humble himself. He doesn't use his power to hide or to oppress. He uses his power to offer his presence to people. In fact, the least common people that you would find around God's people, those from the east, those that had oppressed Israel. 
And finally, he uses his power to bring peace to the nations. So let's jump in here and not miss this. First, this king uses his power to give up his position. Nobody does that. When's the last time you have used power to take away your own position? It just doesn't make sense to us. If you do that, you will be taken advantage of quickly. It's not reasonable. Well, how do we know that Jesus does this? Well, the text tells us right here, and we have to pick up on all of this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Bethlehem is a backwoods. This is a backwoods birth. Where is the king supposed to be born? Jerusalem. It's where the temple is. It's the city of David. Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. It's fields. So this is a backwoods birth. But oh, by the way, there's meaning to it because Bethlehem is also where Jacob buried Rachel. Bethlehem is also where the story of Ruth plays out, and we are told this is going to lead to a king in the line of David. And it's also where David himself was a shepherd, where he worked for his family, where he lived. So there's something about Bethlehem that makes sense to God, and it's very humble. This is not a metropolis. This is a place where you would not expect a king to come from. There are key people that show up in Bethlehem, but it's not a key place. So the expectation is nothing comes out of Bethlehem that we need to take notice of. It would be like me saying, hey, you guys want to know what the next big thing is? Go talk to the people of Haymarket. You guys know where Haymarket is? Okay. You just, we don't say that. No, like we're in D.C. This is where it happens. This is a little bit of what was going on. And Matthew picks up on that right away. He wants you to see what type of king Jesus is. In verse 6, he quotes Micah 5.2, and it's a little bit of a mashup with 2 Samuel 5. He says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. So this is very unexpected. We're told to expect it, but it doesn't make sense. Even in the book of Genesis, after we get through the story of Abraham, we pick up on the story of Joseph, and it goes from chapter 37 to the end of Genesis. It's like a little novella. And you would expect by reading Genesis that Joseph and his tribe would be the king of Israel. And we get to the very end when Jacob is offering his blessing, and he says in Genesis 49, the scepter will not leave the tribe of Judah. What? Friends, God is always showing up where you least expect him. He's always using his power in a way that you do not expect, and he's using it to serve you. So Jesus, God the Son, gives up his position to take position as a child. Let's look at another king in the narrative, just for contrast. Herod, because in a way, this is a tale of two kings, isn't it? It's the Christ, but it's also about Herod. Well, a little bit about Herod. Do you know anything about Herod? Well, 
He was actually a great king in some respects. He was a great administrator. He built all kinds of public work projects, infrastructure. He built a port near Jerusalem called Caesarea. It was really good. The thing about Herod is he wanted both the power of Rome and the love of Israel, and he got it by force. If you know a little bit about history, the whole region around Jerusalem was under the control of, 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 of Greece in a way, especially after Alexander the Great conquered the world at 30, who does that, right? And eventually, there was the Seleucid Empire that kind of took over. Well, Rome wanted it, so they installed Herod, and he conquered it in 40 AD. And then by 37, they gave him the title of Herod the Great, and they also called him King of the Jews. He wasn't really born a Jew. He was, partly. He liked to call himself a Jew, but he didn't practice it. He wanted the love of Israel and the power of Rome. He, a couple things on his resume. He murdered um, one of his wives and her sons because they were a threat to his political power. He murdered a mother-in-law. He killed 46 of the Jewish Sanhedrins. He was brutal. He was not a king you wanted to follow, but he got the job done. Here's what Augustus Caesar said of him. He said, it's better to be Herod's dog than one of his family members. That's the king we're used to. That's actually the king we want. As long as he brings us prosperity, do what you want. He was ambitious, violent, and insecure. A bad combination. Jesus uses his power to give up his position and to be born in Bethlehem. Can I tell you a little bit about Jesus' resume? It's a little different than Herod, but there's some similarities. Let me just read it to you. I'll start in Hebrews. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So a little bit on Jesus' resume. He's the creator of the known universe and the unseen universe, so that's a thing. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's from a royal family. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He sets that aside, as Philippians tells us, not equating his godness, a thing to hold on to, empties himself, takes on the form of a human, humbles himself to the point of obedience on a cross for us. That is how he gives up his position. That is how Jesus uses his power. So are you shocked that God would become a child? You should be. That's probably one of the greatest miracles in your Bible, and we miss it. But you should be even more shocked at how God uses his power to serve you. Jesus, this, this never happens. Jesus uses his power to give up his position, to take position as a child. Have you ever been around somebody who, that makes you feel small? They're like, yeah, you. <laughs> no, really. Somebody, there's just somebody in your life that anytime you talk to him, you walk away falling. You just feel small for whatever reason. Now, maybe it's on them, maybe it's on you, but they make you feel small. 
Jesus literally becomes small. You can't be intimidated by him in this scene. He's a child. He takes on smallness that we might know him. So he gives up his position. This is how he uses his power. Secondly, he uses his power to offer you and us his presence. So we see that there's a couple things we should talk about here. There's wise men that are following this rising star. That's important. And then what they find as they follow it. So what is a wise man? Well, the text actually doesn't say wise man. It says magi. And the magi were a class of priesthood that were found in Mesopotamia and Babylonia and Persia. Uh, we think they're magicians, but they really weren't in the old back in the ancient Near East. They were more like scholars and astrologers and sages. Kings would use them kind of like a prophet or a seer. Uh, you even see in Daniel chapter 1, verse 20, how um, the king gets kind of irritated because his magi can't actually uh, compete with Daniel when it comes to interpreting dreams. So these were folk that had skills. They were, priests, they were almost like a priestly class. And by the time we get to the New Testament, um, they were, they were kind of like charlatans. And they were all over the empire, and it looked like, you know, they, many times they would just use their skills not to serve, but just to get served. So these magi are coming because they see a rising star. They're astrologers. They'd only use stars for navigation, but they would use stars to tell the future. Many times they would interpret a star or a set of stars as determining when a king would be born. That would be normal. Uh, even in ancient Near East cultures today, weddings are set. I've seen this in India. What, the timing of a wedding is set by an astrologer. So you'll be driving down the street, and it'll be a wedding party walking across the street at like 1.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. Not because that's when they had to get married, but that's when the stars aligned for them. So this was very common. What is uncommon about this is God actually uses their dependence on astrology to draw them to himself. Oh, should we, should we take that and say that astrology is something we should use? Absolutely not. In fact, the Old Testament and the New Testament makes it very clear that, that, that using magi or using the dark arts or using astrology to give you security and comfort and direction in life is a quick way to run your life off of a cliff. Which is so impressive here because God, again, humbles himself and utilizes some form of astrology that they had to draw them to Jerusalem because they had interpreted this as meaning that a king was about to be born to Israel that mattered. Now, why would they even think that? Well, don't forget, Israel was in Babylon for 70 years or so. So they not only were influenced by Babylonian culture, Israel influenced them. They had their writings. They had their texts. Maybe they had numbers where it speaks of Balaam's prophecy. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Maybe they were expecting this. However God did it, he did it. And he brings these from the east, which would have still been considered enemies of Israel. 
How far east? It doesn't say. But east is desert. You have to go around to get to Persia and Babylon. And just to clarify, it probably was maybe one to two, maybe even three years after Jesus was born. So he was probably a toddler. It would have taken them at least 40 days, maybe two months to get there by the time they did. And we even see as we get to next week that Herod starts executing kids that are two years old and below. So it had been a little bit since Jesus had been born. So God draws them in. So what kind of star is it? I love it. If you, if you read commentaries, there's all this evidence like, oh, well, there's this, uh, these certain stars aligned, and maybe it was that, maybe. Maybe it was a comet, maybe. Maybe it was an angelic being, maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to waste time on that. I mean, I, I can tell you that airplanes look like stars in the night sky, right? Isn't that a song? So we can see them. It looks like a star. Whatever it was, God used that to draw them in. And from their perspective, even after I spoke with Herod, the star moved. We should be less um, impressed with that and more impressed with what they found. Um, I remember just driving with one of my granddaughters. She's like, Pappy, the moon's following us. I'm like, no, baby, actually, it's, it's about relative motion and the size of it and the distance. She's like, <laughs> Pappy, you don't get it. The moon's following us. Just look out the window. So scripture is writing from perspective. It's not giving you a scientific answer. God used what they had to draw them to himself. God uses his power to offer his presence to the most unlikely people. I have to read Isaiah 60 because maybe they had Isaiah 60. Listen to this. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Verse 3, and nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Maybe they were referencing Isaiah. However God did it, he did it. Friends, do you remember in um, chapter 3 of Exodus, famous verse where God speaks to Moses for the first time, really, through the burning bush? So God uses the light the distraction to, to call Moses to him. And then he says, this is holy ground, sandals off, I'm present, and don't come any closer. God is holy. God had business to do with Moses. God was at work with his people. He was preparing to save. It was holy ground. In very like manner, God uses the light of the star to draw in not Moses, but the Magi, to put them on holy ground. The difference being, Jesus, the Christ, unites God's holiness with humility so that they could approach him and worship him and bow down before him. This is how God uses his power. He kicks open the door to his presence. And he calls them near. You need to know that about Jesus. You need to know about God. This is how he uses his power. And he also uses that power to bring peace to the nations. You know what's crazy about this narrative here that Matthew picks up on? The magi, which is where we get the word magicians, 
they did use dark arts. Of all the people in the Bible, the la- if, especially if you're fabricating a gospel story, the last person you would want to discover the Christ or the king would be an Eastern magi. Nobody trusted him, especially around Jerusalem in the New Testament era. Even seeing Acts, they're just charlatan. And so for Matthew to actually put this in his narrative and say, oh, by the way, the first ones to actually see him and recognize him and bow down to him and worship him were magi. You know, the ones from the east, they came out of the east to worship him. That actually increases the credibility of the gospel because you wouldn't do that if you're fabricating a gospel. It doesn't make sense. And not only that, of course, God has a reason for that. We didn't read this narrative in the very first of Matthew. I'll just read it to you. Chapter 1, it says, The book of genealogy or the origin story of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, those two sonships are important. We know that Jesus is the son of David, meaning he's the Christ. He holds the throne of David. It's very clear. But he also, according to Matthew, is in the lineage of Abraham, which is true. So do you remember what God told Abraham? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is beginning fulfillment of that in a radical way, bringing the oppressors of Israel, probably Babylonians, to discover that he is the Christ. Now, they first go to Jerusalem because that's where the king is born. And Herod says, oh, there's a king? There's a king of the Jews? He's thinking, I'm the king of the Jews. Yeah, go find him and let me know where he is. He uses his power to hold his position. But God, in his mercy, brings in the enemies of God's people to recognize the king has come, yes, king of the Jews, and we will worship him. And You know, Babylon had plunder from Israel, but here they are bringing gifts of gold, bringing gifts of frankincense, which is a worship incense, and myrrh, and they're bowing down to him. So this king brings peace to the nations, to everyone. He opens up salvation to every single person, every nation, every continent, every tribe, every tongue. And he starts with them before his own people to make a very clear point. Listen, most kings use their power to protect their borders, most kings use their power to take from their enemies. This king breaks down borders, breaks down walls. He brings peace to his enemies first. That should shock you, that, that God chose to even include that in Scripture and to do that, because you will find no other king who uses his power like this. Friends, this king uses his power to empower you and to serve you, that you might know him. That should shake you up a little bit. This king is love incarnate. This king has nothing to hide from you, ever. This king, as Revelation 22 says, is the bright morning star. You know what that means? 
Even as the sun comes out, that star doesn't fade. He's not going anywhere. This king means to be found by you. This king is God. This king is humble. This king dwells in unchecked power. And this king is Jesus. This king is Jesus. This is how Jesus uses his power. He gives up his position. He brings you his presence. And he brings peace to his enemies first. Do you know anybody like that? I'm not like that. Do you know anybody like that? Friends, many things can change your life. But there's one thing worth giving your entire life for. This is it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. That's how you respond to the way he uses his power. Use your agency to humble yourself. Maybe the person that's disappointed you the most is you. He can handle your sin. If he can bring peace to the nations, if he can reduce conflict between us and God, he can handle what you've got. We've made a career out of saving ourselves by how good we are and how much we produce and how much we know, but it's never going to finish. Jesus is the king you need. So let us recognize that. Let's humble ourselves under him, receive what he has for us, and walk in peace. Um, when we did our sabbatical, one of the coolest things we did is in Bryce Canyon in Utah, there's a thing called the Dark Park, Dark Sky Park, and they take all the lights out, and you go out there in the middle of the night, and you sit on this bench, and especially if it's a moonless night, everything starts to come into vision. And if you look straight up, you see the Milky Way. It's like, it looks like a cloud, but it's actually the galaxy that we're in, the Milky Way galaxy. It's big, and we're in it. It's a big spiral galaxy, and we can see it above us. You need to take away the distractions and you need to worship a king that has humbled himself for you. This is what Advent is for. So let's worship him. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have given yourself to us in this way. So many of us have disappointed ourselves, been burned by others, have learned to live in a world that utilizes power to take instead of give. And you have used your power over and over and over to give away your rights, to give away yourself <coughs> that we might know you. Let us receive that and humble ourselves under your mighty hand. In the name of Jesus, amen.